hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the 51st chapter of the book of Isaiah, reading the first three verses. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts her I'm sorry, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to us this morning. Let's ask him for illumination. Heavenly Father, as we read this word, let us, uh, let us grasp, we don't have time to take it back into the Old Testament context so much, but let us grasp what you are saying to us through the prophet Isaiah today and, and settle us and comfort us, uh, even in the midst of what some perceive to be very difficult times now and very difficult times ahead. We'll give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Did you ever get bothered when you heard the doomsday prophets telling you that Christianity has had its day, God is dead, and the church is going to dwindle into nothing, that the time of our country being a Christian country is over? Did you ever worry when you saw the statistics and you read that church attendance is beginning to plummet and people, you know, predict that, well, that's going to bring the end of the church? Does it bother you that while we're here in a pandemic that many churches are closing their doors and no intention of reopening? Does it bother you when people begin to compare us in this country to Europe and and what has happened there? And those of you who have been in Europe and looked at it from a spiritual point of view, you realize more than a spirit, less than a spiritual battleground, it's more of a spiritual cemetery. Because, and, and I've shared this with you before, Kay and I were in Scotland several years back and It was so sad to see some of the great old Protestant Reformation churches, some of them going back before the Reformation, boarded up and for sale. And and they're sort of white elephants. I mean, who wants to buy an old church? And so the people who are buying the churches up are are bars. And and they're, they're making bars and cafes in the old churches. And it is so sad to think about the place where the the wine of communion was served is now serving drinks so that people can get drunk, right, right in the same place. You go to England and you see all the great old Anglican cathedrals and you, then you learn that there's not enough people who attend them other than visitors to keep their doors open so they've been taken over by the state and all of the ministers there have been uh, appointed by the state and are on the state payroll. Does it bother you when people say that's where we're headed in this country? Well, if it does, and certainly does me, I want to give you some encouragement this morning. I want to give you some comfort. Because Jesus said it best when he said to Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. This church is here, and it's going to be here until I come back and get it. I mean, we know that. 
But what I also want to share with you is that's not just a New Testament statement. That's not just Jesus saying that. That peppered throughout the Old Testament, peppered throughout Scripture, we have these assurances that God's people are not going to disappear. Even if we look around and we think that that's what we see. And, and, and that's, that's what we have in our passage this morning. Now, I'll be honest with you. I, I didn't approach this passage. I wasn't looking for a passage to preach on this. I, I really wasn't. I was looking, and we'll get to it later on. I was looking for a definition of what the Bible says Thanksgiving is. Because it defines Thanksgiving considerably different than we do. And, and, and we'll get there in a moment. And that led me to the last sentence of the third verse. But then I started reading the rest of the verses and I said, whoa, this is relevant to today. There are a lot of people who are struggling with this right now. So I want to expand it just a wee bit and look at some of the, the backdrop to it. Now, those of you who have been here on Thanksgiving, you know that this is not going to be a full exposition. This is more of a meditation. And my meditations are longer than most people's sermons. So don't get excited about that. But we're not going to go as deep into this as we normally might. So, but let me go ahead and give you just a wee bit of context. Let me tell you what's going on in Isaiah at this particular time. 51st chapter, he has already begun to move into what are known as his suffering servant songs. In fact, if you go back to the 50th chapter, the chapter before this one, we read this. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I, hide, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So we see that he is beginning to move into his, his servant songs. And certainly when we get to the 53rd chapter, you know that that's the great climax of those servant songs. But what's going on in the 51st chapter and well into the 52nd chapter is he's sort of ramping up towards that. It's sort of a crescendo that he's moving towards that. And the reason that I'm pointing this out is I want you to know that this is very messianic. So when I just immediately make a, an application that is very Christian in its orientation and not necessarily going back into what Isaiah is saying to the Hebrews at this time, you'll understand that I'm perfectly justified in doing that because he has moved into a messianic part of his book. The second thing I want you to remember about this is that, of course, Isaiah is writing before any of this happens. It's a prophecy. But he's writing to a people who are terribly dejected. I mean, they are so forlorn. They, 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 they watch the northern kingdom destroyed by Assyria and all the people carried off and spread across the known world. And then Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian exile comes down and kills countless of their people and the rest he marches off to Babylon. So they're in exile in Babylon and they're feeling pretty bad about things because they have dwindled in number. And they're concerned because even if they are released, first of all, they are really upset the fact that scripture says that it's going to be a pagan Cyrus who's going to be their deliverer you know but besides that they're thinking about well how are we going to be able to stand against our enemies when we're able to go back to our home in Jerusalem 
And in a sense, that is an answer to that. And so you can understand why I started out saying what I said. You know something? If you're worried about the church survival, this is exactly what Isaiah is going to address here. So with that said, let's jump into the text. Again, we're just going to kind of move through it quickly. I'm not going to do a deep exposition of it. But notice the way it starts out. An emphatic exhortation. Listen to me. God, or some people think the Messiah, speaking through, through um, Isaiah. Listen to me. Now, what is really nice about this chapter, we're not going to go into it, but if you have your Bibles open, just look at the number of times that this emphatic exhortation, or one like it, is said throughout this chapter. Look in the fourth verse. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. Look in the seventh verse. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. The ninth verse. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old. The 17th verse. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. The 21st verse. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted. Over and over again, Isaiah is telling the people, hey, first of all, I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying because this is really important. But he's also encouraged them, get up off of your rear ends. I mean, stop walking around so dejected. You're God's people. Don't think that he's forsaken you because you've gone through discipline. He's not going to leave you. Awake, awake, because God still has a plan for you, his people. And so that's the tone that we get, that we pick up right from the very beginning. Now, Isaiah's speaking to, as he writes the Lord's words, he's speaking to the people of God. Now, Calvin points out very strongly that just the way that he words this and the fact that this is messianic means he's not just talking to the Hebrews in exile in Babylon. Brothers and sisters, he's talking to you and to me in exile in this Babylon, because we are sojourners in this place. But he refers to them, if you notice, as you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Well, no one pursues righteousness except God's people. No one seeks the Lord except those that the Lord has called to himself. After all, Paul tells us in Romans, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside, no one. Seeks after God. So he's talking here specifically to us. He's talking to you. He's talking to the people of God. And then he goes on after he establishes who he's talking to. I love this. Look what he says in the rest of that verse. He says, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to the rock that you were taken out of. Now, later on in the second verse, he's going to make it clear what he means to the Hebrews. But as far as we are concerned, in a Christian context, I mean, this has such symbolism for us to talk about being hewn from the rock because we know that we are from the rock, the rock that the builders rejected, but God made the cornerstone of his great kingdom that was brought to earth. We are the sons and daughters, actually the brothers and sisters of the rock of ages, Jesus Christ, our rock. You know, when I read this, I, 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 the first thing that comes to my mind when he starts talking about the fact that we were hewn out of this rock, that we were, that we were dug out of this quarry, 
Um, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is Daniel. I know Daniel was actually writing um, after uh, um, Isaiah was. But I think about Daniel. You remember that great vision that Daniel had? Remember the second chapter, the very uh, first time that he was, had that interaction with Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he didn't want his wise men just to tell him what the dream meant. He wanted them to tell him what the content of the dream was and nobody can do it except Daniel. Well, as part of that, as part of what he says, listen to the, the end of that vision from Daniel 2. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That, brothers and sisters, is the rock from which you have been hewn. That's the quarry from which you have been dug because that rock is the kingdom of heaven and the rock of ages, the one that the, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of that great mountain that grows and covers the entire earth. That's the church. That's us. And so there is great encouragement here right off the bat. Now, Isaiah, let's go back to what Isaiah is saying to the Jews because he's telling them, all right, you're, you're despondent and I can understand it. You're in exile. You've lost everything and you've been slaves for quite some time. But I want you to remember that just because you're low in number doesn't mean all is lost. He goes on in the second verse to put it this way. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. Okay? All right. So what are you worried about? You're worried about the church is beginning to, to, to lose numbers and you think that it's just going to go right off the edge? You think that because you're in Babylon and so many people have been killed that you're going to go back and you're going to be too small in number to be able to stand up against your enemies? By the way, that's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. and We know how that story turns out. But God says, remember where you came from. Go back to your roots. Remember who started this? It was a hundred-year-old man who had a 90-year-old wife who was barren her whole life. And that's where we began, from one man. And I made you a mighty nation. So what on earth do you have to be worried about? Because if I could do it once, I can do it again. And in fact, I will do it again. Now, now, this concept or, or this reassurance that we get from God, it, it, this isn't some place that's unique. It really shows up throughout Scripture. Remember the story of Elijah? Okay, we're going backwards a little bit, but remember the story of Elijah? Remember the story when Elijah thought he was the only last righteous believing person on earth? This is what he said. He said, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Woe is me. I am the only one who is faithful to you. Remember what God said? 
I've got 7,000 men who have not bent the knee to Baal. Um, What what on earth are you worried about? Elijah, why don't you be Elijah and, and let me be God? Because you know something? I protect my church and I protect my people. And I'm not going to allow them to come to an end. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember this. You know, and, and I've, I've heard it from many of you. You're just downright despondent because you feel like God has forsaken us. And you look around, and, and I'm not saying you. I should say we because I'm the same way. We look around at a culture that is becoming increasingly secular to where it used to be socially advantageous to be a Christian. Now it is socially advantageous to not be a Christian. That's one of the reasons that we're seeing a drop in church attendance. We, we, we have, live in a place and we see a, a, a mounting opposition to Christianity, if not a downright hostility. Because after all, we are now being accused of being immoral because we don't align ourselves with what the culture says. And, and even within the church, we look around us and we see churches that seem to be filled more with pagans or pseudo-Christians or even nominal Christians than they do true believers. And, and you see whole denominations that are conducting what they call to be worship services that are geared to make pagans comfortable rather than to worship the transcendent and holy God. And we see the numbers of churches dropping, begin to fall off of the, of the map. And we wonder what on earth is going to happen. We see church after church like dominoes falling prey to the culture and the mandates that the culture dictates. And we look at Europe and we say, that's us. And we begin to worry. But scripture tells you, don't. Remember what John the Baptist said? When all those Pharisees came out, and you know, they're acting so hotty-totty. You know, I wear the sons of Abraham. He says, don't be so proud because you're the sons of Abraham because God is able to raise up sons of Abraham from these rocks. And that's what he did. Brothers and sisters, this church that is the church of Jesus Christ is founded on the solid rock, that solid rock that is Christ. And it has happened throughout history. I mean, if you wanted to, we could do what Isaiah says. We could go back to Abraham, and we could start with him and trace it away up. But from a Christian context, why don't we just start at Pentecost? How many people were at Pentecost? How big was the church when the formal foundation occurred? 120 there? 120 people and maybe another couple of hundred scattered around uh, Palestine that Jesus had had a direct impact on? And yet, that small group of people became that mighty mountain that that Daniel talked about. That literally filled the earth because we have spread from one end of the earth to the other. Remember what happened when the Jews decided that they would crush the fledgling church when it was crushable? They sent their number one hitman to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus. And what happened to him? Jesus knocked him off of his horse or his donkey and turned him into the number one apostle, the number one expositor of scripture. Well, then the Roman Empire decides they're going to crush Christianity and they're going to stomp it out and they're going to lead him into the Colosseum and they're going to burn him at the stake. What happened to Rome? A couple of centuries later, they all bend the knee to Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that was the best thing to happen. It was actually a pretty difficult, bad time for the, for the church. But nonetheless, it is historical that Rome caved in to Christianity. What happened during the apostasy of the Middle Ages? 
When you, you have to imagine that someone like Jan Hus, who was, who was burned at the stake for his faith, he had to feel like he was all alone. He's got to echo the words of Elijah. God, they've done everything wrong. They have completely perverted and corrupted your doctrine. And they burned him at the stake. He's got to think with me, there goes the end. But it wasn't true, was it? God raised up Martin Luther. Raised up Martin Luther. Gave him the bully pulpit of the Gutenberg Bible. And he says, you know, that they stood at the, the Diet of Worms. And he says that I cannot deny my faith. I will stand on what I believe. And then they raised up people like, like Calvin and Zwingli and John Knox and Bucer and others. And all of a sudden, the Reformation took hold out of darkness, light. God brought an entire rebirth of his church, even though it looked so completely hopeless. Then do you remember what happened in England when... They began to persecute the Puritans. They fled, and they fled to Holland first, and then they fled where? Here, to this country. And, oh, by the way, just so we keep this in context, what was the name of that tradition they started when they came and established this country as a Christian company, as a country? Thanksgiving, wasn't it? Right? So that kind of brings us right back here. You see how God works? You see how God is never going to forsake his church and never, ever going to turn against them? Uh, That leads me to one beautiful passage, and I know that I love this, you love it. It's a beautiful image from Peter, second chapter of 1 Peter. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That is Jesus. That's the rock from which you have been hewn. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, that's us. That's the, that's the, the very thing that, I know, I know Isaiah doesn't have Peter in mind, but that's the very thing that he's talking about. The exact thing, actually, when Isaiah says this, look in the third verse, for the Lord comforts Zion. Now, I know that Isaiah has a different idea of Zion than we do, but Peter just talked about us being Zion. We are the spiritual Zion. Now, we have some beautiful images of that. I shared that one of Daniel with the rock not cut by human hands that becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. Or what Peter just talked about, the cornerstone upon which living stones are built up into a living house of worship to our God's. But I also love the image that Paul gives us in Romans when he says, if some of the branches were broken off, referring to the church as a tree, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. So when God says here, or when Isaiah says, the Lord comforts Zion, he's talking about you, brothers and sisters. He's talking about the church. And isn't it a sad situation? And again, I'm not going to say you, I'm going to say we. Isn't it a sad situation that we look everywhere else before we look to our Lord for comfort? 
Because he has promised us that in him we will find comfort. And we will not find it in the culture, folks. The culture will always betray us and turn its back on us. And it is only in the Lord that we will find comfort. And not just in good times. That's why I love what follows. It's one of my favorite, my new favorite little passages in Scripture. Look in that third verse. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Oh, what a beautiful statement that is. So what does he mean when he says he comforts all their waste places, their desolate places? Well, let me let... Calvin answered that for me, and then I'll explain because he uses kind of stilted language. But he says it very concisely. He says, this is what it means. The Lord will comfort his church, not only when she shall be in a flourishing condition, but likewise when she shall be desolate and reduced to solitude. For she must have been laid desolate, and her frightful ruins must have brought her to the verge of destruction before she felt the aid which he here describes. And and, and basically what he's saying is this, that the Lord comforts Zion in good times and bad, in times of plenty and times of famine, in times where the church is flourishing and in times when it looks like we're going to be persecuted out of existence. And actually, it's sort of paradoxical, axiomatic if you look at it that way, because it is during the times of plenty, and we are coming, uh, some of us think that we are coming to the end of a time of plenty, a, a, a time where we have been free to worship without persecution, without any kind of recourse from the culture around us. But it is in times of plenty that we tend to forget that the Lord is our comfort. And we begin to, well, you know, we must be doing all right, you know. We're, we, God's blessing us, so whatever we're doing, we must do it right. And so we get lazy, and we stop doing the very fundamentals of what God has called us to do. What he's going to call us to do in this passage is thanksgiving. And we forget it, and we stop it, and we apostatize. And before you know it, God removes his hand of blessing. And we say, oh, God, you've you, you punished us. Well, actually, he may not be punishing you at all. It may be that he's turned his back on the country that you live in, or he's forsaken, or he's removed his hand of restraint. But what Isaiah is saying here is that he will never do that to you. He'll never forsake his church. That even in your desolation, even in times of deep persecution, there are spiritual blessings that abound. In fact, sometimes even greater spiritual blessings are going to come during the times of difficulty. So this is a powerful and a beautiful statement that even in the midst of your desolate areas, you should have joy and gladness. We tend to put way too much emphasis on political leaders and and elections and who's in control of this land or seems to be in control. They make a lot of noise and they squawk loudly. But elsewhere, Isaiah says that the Lord sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are grasshoppers. Nothing but a bunch of bugs. That our Lord is the one who is in complete control. Which brings me to where I actually was going to start. Because what attracted me to this whole passage, and and you can see now that I, I looked at it, I said, boy, this is relevant 
So I, I wanted to kind of branch out, but it's this last phrase that really attracted me. When not, he says that in, in this garden, joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. And as I said earlier, what actually I started out doing was to try to find the biblical definition of thanksgiving. Because, you see, what we do on this holiday is not necessarily thanksgiving. In fact, what we do, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, and I'm not talking about all the people who forget God and just stuff themselves and this is a day off for them. And they don't give any credit or they don't articulate a thank or a gratitude to God at all. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying even we Christians, we, we don't quite get the idea of thanksgiving. That's why some of you thought it was a really boring sermon title. Couldn't he have come up with something a little bit more exciting than a thanksgiving message? Well, if you notice, there's two words there. Because actually, what we should call this holiday, the way we celebrate it, we should call it Thankfulness Day. We should call it Gratitude Day. We should call it the day when Christians articulate their thanks to God for His provision. That, because that's what we do. But that's not Thanksgiving. Now, Thanksgiving in the New Testament... Uh, the same word is used everywhere that it's used. It's the Greek word, the same Greek root that we get the word Eucharist from. The Eucharist, as you know, is just another word for the Lord's Supper. And, and it's tied together because actually the Lord's Supper is a time of remembrance and thanksgiving for our salvation. So that would make sense. But it's actually the Old Testament that I want to go to because there are two words that are used in the Old Testament that are translated into English, thanksgiving. And both of them give us sort of a different picture of what thanksgiving is. The first one, and the one that is by far the most prevalent, is the word in Hebrew, toda. And, and, and toda simply means a thanksgiving offering, a thanksgiving sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, the idea of a thanksgiving where we come and articulate our thankfulness to God was a foreign concept in the Bible as far as thanksgiving is concerned. Thanksgiving carried with it some kind of giving. That's why it's called thanksgiving. There was a time of sacrifice. Let me read to you from Leviticus because this is just one of many that translate the word todah. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. This is Leviticus 7. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. So in other words, in the Old Testament, the idea of thanksgiving was not the articulation of gratitude for what God had done. It was a sacrifice. You brought a peace offering, and along with it, you brought bread and oil, and you made a sacrifice to the Lord. There was something tangible. There was something real. There was something that you gave as part of thanksgiving. Well, that's what they did in the old days. That's what they did in the sacrificial system. So how does that relate to us today? How should we look at Thanksgiving? 
Well, I could be completely disingenuous right now and turn this into a stewardship sermon and, and, and say that's what God wants you to do is he wants you to bring you know, your tithes and offerings. But that's not it at all. That's not the idea of a New Testament sacrifice. Paul probably says it better than anyone in Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay? Now, two things that he mentions there that constitute the sacrifice. One is the sacrifice of ourself. And he's not just talking about moral purity. He's talking about what Jesus put in other words in all the synoptics when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him die to self. Let let him sacrifice self to me, him or her, to sacrifice it on the altar because that's the sacrifice I want from you. That's the offering I want you to give. That's the thanks giving that I want from you. And it's you. It's all of you. It's not part of you. It's not a a watered down you. It is the entire total complete you losing the identity that you used to have and then coming to me. That's the thanksgiving offering that I want. That's what thanksgiving means, folks. It's total and complete sacrifice of self to Christ. But then there's Another aspect of it that Paul puts there, notice that he says that this is your spiritual worship. Boy, does this tie in with what we're talking about on Sunday mornings when we talk about worshiping the holy. Brothers and sisters, when we thanksgive, when we give thanks, when we experience thanksgiving, it is to worship God as he should be worshiped in spirit and truth. It is to truly worship the holy in the splendor Of his holiness. As we read earlier in that song. That is the sacrifice that God wants from us. True. Pure. Fervent. Focused. Worship. Of him. That's what Thanksgiving is. And that's why it's so amazing that more churches don't have Thanksgiving services. Because that's what you do on Thanksgiving. Is worship. Well there's another word. And this one is shorter. It's not used as much. But it's the Hebrew word yada. And no, I don't think that's where the term yada, yada, yada came from. But it's a Hebrew word, and and it's a very interesting word. It actually, and and it's not used in our text, but it it is sort of referred to by the voice of song. Because to yada, to thanksgive, to give thanks using yada, is to give thanks, to glorify him, to give thanks with song, with instrument. Let me read to you from Second Chronicles. And again, this is back from the time of the dedication of the temple under Solomon when the Shekinah comes down, Second Chronicles 5. It was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Okay? Now, it's an interesting word, yada. Because the word actually means to throw a stone or or, or to heave a stone. Okay? So that's, that's what our praise is, folks. We are heaving our praise at God. We are throwing Our praise, our glory, our songs, our worship, our reverence 
It's not, it's not that we come and we sing the songs and we say, boy, I like that song. It makes me feel, you know, warm and fuzzy. It's, it's my kind of song. No, you come to throw your praise at him. That's thanksgiving. And those are the two ways that the scripture tells us that we should actually give thanks. So let me wrap this up with this this way. A lot of people are worried right now about what's going to happen to our country. A lot of people are worried about the fact that the church seems to be in the crosshairs of the culture. And that who knows what's going to happen to us. And oh, the doomsday and problems are going to happen. Well, God is here to tell you, reinforce what Jesus says. This is my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That God comforts Zion. Even in the desolate places. Even in the hard times. Even in times of persecution, he will fill you with spiritual blessings. So don't fear. Don't fear what's going on outside. Don't fear those who can hurt the body, as Jesus said. Fear the one who can send soul and body to hell both. And that gives us freedom to experience joy and gladness and real thanksgiving. And, and when we gather around our table, and again, please forgive me because what we're going to do right now is express our thankfulness to God. But I'm not saying don't do that. That's a good thing to do. But just remember that true thanksgiving is to hurl our entire self, our worship, our praise, our songs to literally throw them at the Lord. Because he's a good catch. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you give us this opportunity to understand a little bit more of what Thanksgiving is and, and how we should really express it. Lord, I know that in a sense I'm preaching to the choir because they're here. And they are doing what you call us to do on Thanksgiving. You, we are worshiping. We're giving up the sacrifice of praise to you. On this year day, uh, because it is a day of Thanksgiving. This isn't your day, it's a, a national holiday, but it is a time that we, as your people, make it your day because we turn to you and we give thanks on this Thanksgiving. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.